You're listening to audio from Mountain View Church, located in Murphy, North Carolina. If you'd like more information, you can find us at www.mtnvu.org or on Instagram and Facebook at Mountain View Church NC. verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter through books of the Bible. 1 John chapter 4, verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe that God loves us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God also love his brother. Father, we come to you now on the cusp of working our way through this particular text from your word. And my prayer right out of the gate is that you would take that journey with us. That your Holy Spirit who inspired these words who preserved these words for us, would now open our hearts and minds to receive these words. More than simply receiving them, though, that your Holy Spirit would take these words, plant them in our hearts, root them there, and cause them to bear fruit in lives of greater faithfulness to Christ. Specifically, in lives of greater and deeper and more consistent love for you and love for one another and love for a dark world in desperate need of our Lord. Help us now. You are the true teacher. 
There is none but you who can take this word. Make it move from page to heart. Humble ourselves before you. Ask all of these things in Christ's name. So a couple of things before we make our way into this text. This text concludes a section of 1 John that really began back in verse 7 of chapter 4. If you'll remember there, John wrote, Beloved, let us love one another. This text concludes by repeating the same command in verse 21. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Those two bookends really tell us that everything that's come from verse 7 all the way through verse 21 is to be understood in light of those two commands. Those two really repetitions of the same command. And so here's what I want you to know, and here's what I want you to remember and be aware of as we walk into this text. A lot of what you're going to hear today, you heard last week. And and there are really two options when you and I hear the same thing over and over again. We can either tune it out, or we can tune in and say, hey, wait a minute, maybe this repetition is important. Maybe I really need to listen to this. So I hope for you and my hope for me this morning is that the second thing would be true of all of us, that our hearts would be soft to the things that the Spirit of God wants to tell us. Secondly, this morning, I want you to keep something in mind as we work our way through this text. John here isn't working from the outside in, okay, he's working from the inside out. Now, that's going to be important, and you'll see why in just a few minutes. John's showing us in this text evidences that God's own love is actually at work in us in order to assure you and I that we are children of God. In other words, active love, the kind of love that God calls us to have, particularly the brothers and sisters in the church is not a pathway into relationship with God. Active love for God and for others flows out of relationship with God. It comes from the heart of God. It flows to us and then ultimately God's intention is that his love would flow out through us to others. And look, here's here's the deal. And this goes all the way back to the very first verses of 1 John. Nothing, nothing I think would make John happier as an author than for you and I to know that we know that we know that we know that we are children of God. And therefore, we have nothing to fear before God. So keep those two big things in mind this morning as we work our way through this text. This is a text essentially, again, about being certain of our faith, being certain of our standing before God, being certain that we are children of God, and that on the judgment day when we stand before God, we will have nothing to fear in His presence. 
So John starts off in verse 12 by reminding us that if we love one another, you and I can be certain that we do know God. Now, we closed things out with this verse last week, but I thought it was important to kind of bridge the gap between last week and this week by repeating this verse again and by beginning our journey through this text with this verse because John there uses an important word that comes up three other times in our text this morning, and it's the word perfect. In verse 12, John writes, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Remember, John's talking about not our love, but God's own love for us and God's love at work through us. Now, what kind of love are we talking about? John specifically defined it. In 1 John 3.16, when he said, By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us. Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought also to lay down our lives for the brothers. We're talking about cross-shaped love. We're talking about self-giving love. We're talking about sacrificial love. Now, why is love for one another a key indicator that God has made his home in our hearts? John says in verse 12 that God abides in us and his love is perfected in us if, if we love one another. Love for one another shows that God's own love has been perfected in us. Or, and this might be a better way to say it, that God's love has reached its appointed end or has completed its mission in our lives. You see, God's love for you and I only reaches its culmination when it begins to flow through us to others. When we are transformed by God's love into people who love like him. When you and I hear the word perfect, we immediately equate perfection with flawlessness. But that's not what the word means here. The word here means complete. It means something that has reached its fulfillment. Something that has reached its intended conclusion. Now, understanding that word is incredibly important for understanding verses 17 and 18, which we're going to get to in just a few minutes. But I want you to notice what John does here. He does something he's done, and we've pointed it out several times before. He brings up the character, or rather the identity of God, to remind us that love flows from who God is. He says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in God and God in us because he has given us of his spirit. Now in the context of the whole passage, What John is saying is if you and I love one another in the way that God has loved us, we can be certain that the God who is love resides in us through the presence of his Holy Spirit. 
But notice that John just doesn't mention the Spirit here. What does he go on to say in verse 14? And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. What do you notice again that you picked up on last week? The mention of the Spirit, the Father, and the Son. Remember what we said. The fact that God is love is not incidental to who God is. God is fundamentally love because God is trinity. Because God doesn't exist as an isolated being who needed to create in order to have something to give his love to. No, if you and I had never been created, God could have existed in perfect love for all eternity. But God intended and desired to share the overflowing love between Father and Son and Spirit with someone or something, and so he made you and I to share that with. That's why we exist. So John's saying, if you and I love one another in the way that the Father has loved us, we can be certain that we not only have the Spirit dwelling in us, but that we understand the self-giving love of the Father. If we love one another in the way that God has loved us, we can also be certain that we know the Son who loved us enough to give himself for us. This is why John can say in verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So, we have come to know, again, using the same language he used in verse 13, and to believe the love that God has for us. Here's that little sentence again. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. In other words, there is this interactive relationship that exists between Father and Son and Spirit and between all of those who have called to share in their life. John is very simply saying this, to know God is to know love, and if you know the God who is love, you will love like the God who is love. It's impossible to be and to do otherwise. The argument that John is making if you and I love one another as Christ has shown us love, we can be certain. We can be certain that we have a real relationship with God. John says we have come to know. And we can be certain that our relationship with God is characterized by this abiding in him and he in us, mutual indwelling, and that our faith is genuine. John writes, we have come to know and believe that God has love for us. In fact, God is love. And if we abide in his love, and his love abides in us, then we know and believe we are, in fact, his children. Fundamentally, twice in chapter 4, John writes, God is love. Which means 
to be, again, and it's worth saying this multiple times, to be in relationship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is to know the love of God personally. It's to know the love of God within the context of a spiritual family of which each and every one of us are a part if we share in the Holy Spirit. And it's to live by faith. Faith in God's own love for you. And then ultimately, as John is arguing throughout this text, to then walk that faith out in love with a spiritual family to whom you and I are eternally connected by the Holy Spirit. To know God is to love God. To love God is to then love like God loves, particularly in the context of the local church. That, that's really the fundamental argument of this entire passage from verse 7 all the way to verse 21. You see, those who are born of God, as John said earlier, and those who have God as their father will ultimately bear the family likeness. Those who know God cannot help but overflow with the same kind of self-giving, self-sacrificial, cross-shaped love with which the heart of the Father overflows. John's saying, you and I can be certain. We can be certain that we know God if we have love for one another. Don't get the cart before the horse. You can't love one another and then somehow weasel your way into a relationship with God as if by loving others you could present those things to God and say, look God, I love pretty well. We good? How it works. And John's told us that's not how it works because love comes from God. And we're not talking about our love for others here. We're talking about God's love for us, which God perfects in us and through us. Horse belongs before the cart. Second thing in this text that I think is important comes in verses 17 and 18. There John writes, if you and I love one another, we can be certain that we are prepared to face God on judgment day. Now the first thing I want to be really clear about in verses 17 and 18 is basically John's awareness that there is a day coming in which you and I, all of us, are going to stand before God. In fact, John merely states the coming of judgment day as a matter of fact. we don't necessarily believe or live like there's a day coming when you and I will stand in the presence of God and have to give an account for our lives. John just assumes it. That day is coming. And John tells us here in these two verses one way that we can think about being prepared that day. Now, I mentioned a few minutes ago that it's going to be really important to understand the meaning of the word perfect in this text before getting to these verses because 
The word appears three times here. And it means the same thing that it did in verse 12. This is what John's saying in verses 17 and 18. When when God's self-giving love for us reaches its appointed end and it flows from us to others, you and I have no reason to fear ahead of the day of judgment. Because when God's love is matured in us and it produces the fruit of love through us, we can be certain that we are children of God. That's what John writes. He says, by this, by coming to know God and believing the love that God has for us, by this is love completed. In us. By this does love reach its point of maturity where it now bears fruit in lives of love. By this love is perfected in us so that we have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. And what does that little phrase mean? It simply means that as Jesus himself was sent on a mission of love from the Father, so now you and I are sent by the one who is love incarnate into the world to be the representatives of his love for the world. As God loves us through the Son, now we are to be agents of the Son who loves us and loves the world now through us, his body. What John is essentially saying is when the love of God reaches its completion in us and we are bearing the fruit of love and lives of love, we will have confidence on the day of judgment knowing that we are his children because we bear the family likeness. You see, love that has matured, love like a, like a fruit tree that's finally grown tall enough and strong enough and old enough to actually bear fruit, love that's matured into active, cross-shaped love for others, that is the love that casts out all fear. Love that's gone from head to heart to hands is the love that casts out all fear. Here's a question I've asked myself this week. Could it be that some of the doubts that we have about our own salvation might actually dissipate if God's love went from here to here to here? Could it be that some of us actually doubt whether or not we are children of God because our lives, frankly, don't bear the family likeness? Could it be that some of us actually fear standing before God because if our lives told the story today, our lives would not tell the story in the presence of God of anything resembling or even close to the likeness of the Father? I think this is exactly what John is saying in verse 18. He says, there's no fear in love, but perfect or 
completed or culminated or mature or active love. Active love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been, there's the word again, completed in love. In other words, whoever is fearful of coming divine judgment has not yet given themselves to a life of love in response to God's own love. So, what's the pathway? What's the pathway to confidence then? Ahead of the day of judgment. I thought John Piper said it really well when he said, the way to boldness, the way to confidence and fearlessness is to walk love, not just talk love. Love is perfected not when it is sinlessly flawless, but when it passes from talk to walk. Love is perfected when it passes from talk to walk. Confidence replaces fear when love passes from talk to walk. Let's get really practical for a minute. If this church family is your church family, what is stopping you? What's, what's giving you pause when it comes to taking that first step and beginning to walk in love and not just talk love? Are you afraid that love will ask more of you than you think you can give? Will. <laughs> it will. Are you afraid that love will require building relationships with people who will disappoint you? It will. Are you afraid that love will require you to reorient your schedule and reorient your priorities around people rather than tasks? Me too. And it will. Are you afraid that love will require you to get uncomfortably close to people? So close, in fact, that it becomes impossible to hide your flaws. Yeah, boy. It will. Are you afraid that love will require you to put yourself out there? And risk getting hurt again, just like you did at that last church. It will. It will. Perhaps what you need to do, if you're feeling like a clogged pipe this morning, if you're feeling like you just don't know whether or not God loves you, whether or not you are in fact a child of God, is to face down your fears and to begin to act by faith and to begin to love. Love's not primarily an emotion. Love is primarily an action. 
Thanks, Haven. Love's primarily an action driven by faith, not feeling. Love is primarily an action driven by faith, not feeling. So, what about joining that small group? What about joining that ministry team? What about asking that person or that family over for dinner? What about revisiting that relationship in the church that's grown cold because of past hurt? What about moving toward that individual who seems isolated and alone? What about saying enough of hiding behind this protective shell? If God's my father and God's given himself to me in love, then I'm called now to break through that shell and by faith give myself in love to others. Ultimately, love is worth the risk. You see, by allowing the Lord to express his own love through us, we can grow in confidence that we are prepared to stand before him as his children on judgment. Now, remember I said at the beginning of the sermon that it's important to keep in mind here that John is working not from the outside in, but from the inside out. In other words, again, we don't want to make the mistake of getting the cart before the horse. We don't want to make the mistake of saying, ha, I know how to be prepared for judgment day. Just perform all kinds of random acts of kindness. And then when I'm standing before God, pull out the list that I've checked off and say, here you go, we good? It's important that John comes back to where he does in verse 19, lest we forget. What does he say? We love because he first loved us. You see, at the end of the day, if we love one another, we can be certain that God first loved us. We can be certain that if we have any kind of inkling or desire to love the body, the particular brothers and sisters he's placed around us, and if that love is taking shape in our lives, we can be certain, you and I both together, that that ain't coming from us. That's coming from love. You see, God wants us to be certain that we don't get confused about the order of things. Our own love for God and our love for one another is possible only because God first loved us. Again, this text isn't laying out avenues into relationship with God. John isn't telling us how to get on God's good side by loving like God loves. We only have the hope of loving like God because God first loved us. In fact, going back to verse 12, You'll remember that John calls this love his love, God's love. 
It's God's own love that meets its intended end in us when his love flows through us to others. You see, God's mission in Christ was not simply to create a people who are loved, but to create a people who are loved and who loved. Because God first took action toward us and has now given us his spirit of love, we can move out in action toward others. You see, in a sense, and in the very best way, God's love is contagious like that. God's love is contagious, and it cannot be any other way. Because God first loved us, we love. Because God took action, so will we. This is why, both to John and also to us, it should make no sense when walk and talk do not match up. Look at what he writes. Verse 20, he says, If anyone says, I love God. Now, we've, we've crossed this territory before in the book of 1 John. Earlier in the book, John contrasted saying with doing. Comes up again. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a what? A liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot possibly love God whom he has not seen. The logic there is very simple. On a small scale, it's easy to love the people right in front of you because you know what their needs are. You know who they are. You can observe their lives. You can get to know them in very practical ways. But frankly, on a grander scale, it's somewhat more difficult to get to know the unseen God and to sometimes know that that relationship is reciprocal and interactive. So John says very simply, look, if you don't love the people right around you, the people you see, the people you know, the people you have relationships with, how can you love the invisible God? He says, in fact, you and I cannot. The person who says I love God but hates his brother is, in fact, a liar. To know God is to experience his love, and to experience his love is to become a more loving person. This is also why, in verse 21, the command, whoever loves God must, must, must also love his brother, is not simply a commandment. It's actually a statement about reality. It's a statement about what is. The person who loves God must, love his brother it cannot be any other way for love's God love the love of God flows to us and ultimately through us producing fruit in our lives that nourishes other people in love look this is exactly why John exhorted us earlier in the letter little children this is first John three eighteen. little children let us not love in word or talk 
but in deed and in truth. Bottom line is this. The love of God, if it is in us, will find an outlet through us. The love of God, if it is in us, it will find an outlet through us. It will not be flawless. It will not be flawless because you and I are still growing. We're still developing. The roots of God's own love for us are still searching for deep waters in our soul. God is changing us and slowly but surely, like the growth of a fruit tree, he's producing those things in us. And he will have his way. We will be fruitful people. But it's because of his love at work in us that will produce the fruit of love through us. You know, one of the main ways that the love of God does this in the church is through the mutual exercise of spiritual gifts for the building up of the body of Christ. This is, in fact, the Apostle Paul's entire argument in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14. A lot of people read that love chapter right in the middle in weddings and other contexts like that, but it's fundamentally there to remind us that the gifts that God gives us through his Holy Spirit are intended to be aimed through self-giving love toward the brothers and sisters in the body that we might build one another up. So you and I have been given certain gifts by the Holy Spirit so that you and I might turn our attention sacrificially toward one another in the body so that you and I might use those gifts for the eternal good of the people that God has placed around us. You see, after all, as Paul says there, we are one body made up of several parts. And though we aren't all the same part, and though we aren't all called to play the same part, we all do have a part. For the Spirit has gifted you, my friends, because the Spirit loves you and the Spirit loves the church. Christ. Now the Spirit's calling you and I out, some of us into deep waters, some of us pushing through and breaking through that protective shell in order that you and I might love like Christ has loved us. Now, like we've already said, it's not going to be perfect love in terms of flawlessness. You and I can be very thankful that the Lord Jesus is not only our example of love. The Lord Jesus is the one through whom we are forgiven because of our lack of love. He's the one through whom we are now set free to love as he loved. No, we will not love flawlessly, but in and through Christ, through the presence and power of his Holy Spirit, you and I can love actively, and we can love truthfully, however much we stumble in those things. And we can love sacrificially. You see, the regular reminder 
that you and I share in this relationship of love with Christ and with one another is Christ's ongoing invitation to come to his table. Every single month on the final Sunday of the month, we come right back here. Right back to the bread and the cup. Because these things, these very simple elements that come from the earth itself are tangible, smellable, tasteable reminders. God loves you. God loves me. And that God's promises are real. And that if we place our faith in Christ, His body was broken for us that you and I might be made whole in and through him. And his blood was shed for us that you and I might know the forgiveness of our sins. Not once, but now and forever. Because Jesus need die how many times? Only once. For the forgiveness of sins. And so now we receive the gift of the cup as a reminder of his promise. That our sins were forgiven, are forgiven, and will be forgiven. Here's the thing. When you and I come and we sit down at his table, the Lord greets us. For this is his table. Remember that. The Lord greets us with his love for us. And he reminds us in the bread and the juice. He knows everything about us. Remember what we said last week? He knows everything about us. He loves us anyway. This is intended to nourish us. It's intended to sustain us as we look to Christ in faith. Remind us that we do have a place in the Father's house. Here's something we forget, though. At the table of the Lord, we're also reminded that we're never dining alone. This is not a table set for one. It's not a table set for two. It is, in fact, a table set for the body of Christ down through the ages. It's a table set specifically for this body, for this family, for the communion of saints. For when we commune with Christ by his spirit, we are also communing with one another by that same spirit. And so when we share this sacred meal together, we're sharing it with all of those who are also recipients of God's grace in Christ. We are sharing it with those whom God commands us to love. We are sharing it with those whom God has knit us together in Christ. So so this morning, as you take up that little cup in your hand and you taste that little tasteless wafer (laughs) and you drink the juice from the cup, know that there are 70 some odd people in this room doing the exact same thing with you and you with them and all of us together with Christ. Remember that we drink and we eat together in one another's company as those who dwell together in the love of God. So, 
I invite you this morning to take up the little cup and to prepare to share in this meal, this little snack, I guess you could say, this little foretaste of the kingdom of God together. Now, don't do it just yet. Remember, this isn't a table set for one. It's something we do together. Help me to truly see where there are needs that I can meet. You know, part of that requires us knowing one another well enough to know where the needs are. Y'all, there are all kinds of people who hide their needs because they're ashamed of their needs. What if, our, what if our needs were intended to humble us? In fact, to humble us enough to where we actually have to say, hey, look, I need help. After all, that's how the Christian life begins, right? Like, that's how we mature in the gospel. To mature in Christ is to recognize continually and increasingly how much help I actually do need. So what if life in the church looked more like that? Hey, I, I need help. Great. We've got a way to meet that need. Look, when, when we give to meet a specific need that God reveals to us, we're not only meeting that need, or revealing the love of God through that everyday act of kindness and compassion. I want you to know something. We're actually showcasing the fact that Christ is worth more than the world's goods. Withholding compassion. When you and I see a need, says something important about what we think of God about what we think of the person in front of us, about what we think of the stuff that he's given us, and about how we relate to all of that. Think about it. Think about what John says. If you and I see someone who has a need, and we actually open our hearts and open our hands to meet that need, what are we saying? We're saying, by faith, Jesus you are worth more than the world's stuff. Jesus, if I give this away, I actually trust you enough to provide for my needs. Jesus, if I give this to this individual or to this family, I'm saying, Jesus, I know that you love me enough to give your life for me. And if you've given your life for me, I know that you will provide for every single need that I have. I think this is what John means when he says in verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. When we, when we show that God's love is more than words, we showcase the fact that God's love is a self-giving love. We show that God's love is worth more than the world's goods, that, that Christ, in fact, is having such a profound effect on our lives 
that the stuff that he's given us no longer means as much to us as loving those around us as he has loved us. Now, in the final two verses of this passage, I see a pointer to the Lord's table. The Lord's table is is a drama. wedding ceremony where God enacts his promise to the one who has trusted in Christ and the one who has trusted in Christ says I commit my life to you then communion is like the vow renewal ceremony where every time we come to the table Jesus says I love you here's my body broken for you here's my blood shed for you Remember. And then we say to Jesus, thank you. Help me to live in such a way that faithfulness marks my life and love for you and love for others pours out from me. That's what we do at the table. It's one of my favorite things to do. And it's meant as a blessing to the people. By the way, if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, no matter whether or not you're part of Mountain View, you should come to this table. If you're sitting there this morning and you're thinking, Mike, I've had a horrible week. Mike, I messed up. Mike, I don't deserve to sit at the Lord's table. No, you don't. Nobody does. But the invitation's open by grace through faith, to pull up a chair, 
and to be served by the king. He says, you don't deserve to be here, but I've prepared this table for you because I love you. Eat and drink. Remember my love for you. And walk in it. So let me pray for us. We're going to prepare our hearts to remember the love of Christ this morning. Heavenly Father, as we approach this time of communion, God, that's exactly what it is. To sit down and to eat and to drink at your table is a sign of the fellowship we share with you, Father, and with you, Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, it's my prayer this morning, as we hear the command, you should love one another, that we would enter into this time of communion recognizing how far short we fall of that, but that we should enter it thankfully, knowing that the one who shows us the way loved us when we were at our very worst and now welcomes us to sit down and to eat with him and to repent of sin and to confess our need for his strength and power to walk in ways of love. So as you've already met with us, meet with us now and feed us, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. You'll find a little cup with a little wafer on top of it, either underneath the seat in front of you or on the seat that you sat down in, perhaps if you were on the back row. I invite you to take that now and to peel off just the very top layer where that little tasteless wafer is. And to take that out and to eat it. It represents the body of Christ. Broken for you that you might be made whole in Him. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus passed the bread among his disciples. And he said, eat and do this in remembrance of me. So you may do that now in the same way. After dinner, Jesus passed around a cup of wine. And he said to his disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. What's a covenant? It's a promise. It's a promise. So every time you drink the cup, you and I are remembering and reenacting that night. And Christ is making the same promise to you that he made to his disciples. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. The blood of Christ has set you free from the power and the penalty of sin. And we do this looking forward to the day when we, and I, when we will all sit around this table and we will be free from the presence of sin. So take and drink, my friends, and drink in celebration of the victory of Christ over sin and Satan and death and hell.